Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Neil, and I'm one of the pastors here at The Edge. I just want to welcome you to our Sunday morning gathering. And if you would, take a minute to like and share this video. We want to make sure that anyone who doesn't know Jesus has the opportunity to encounter him through our gatherings. It is so good to be with you this morning as we continue in our series called Active Discipleship. This series is going to last a total of about four months, and it's going to be broken up into four different sections. And today is the very last day of the first section as we finish talking about worship. So far, we've talked about um, aspects of worship. Worship is about ascribing worth to God. We've talked about how worship that God wants from us is costly. It always costs us something to, to offer our full lives of sacrifice to the Lord. And then last week, Pastor Steve shared that worship requires us to worship, we're required to worship in spirit and in truth. Today, we're going to talk about how worship is a weapon. Yes, when you focus on Jesus, he fights your battles. Here is a central truth that I would love it if you would grab a hold of today. Psalm 22, verse 3, the King James Version says, God inhabits the praise of his people. God inhabits the praise of his people. So what does that mean exactly? It means that when you worship the Lord, he drives the devil away from you and your circumstances. As he, in essence, he shows up in your life and he takes a seat and he scares away the schoolyard bully. Can you imagine a more effective method of warfare than that? The spiritual realm is eternal, and we're just passing through this life, even though this present life that we're in is the only one that we really understand. One day, we're going to look back at all of this, and we're going to see that this life that we lived was just a tiny precursor for all that was to come for us. So what if we lived our lives um, with view of the eternal uh, more seriously and took the Lord more literally? I don't know all that would happen, but I'm confident that we would see far more victories in our lives if we did that. The idea is not an easy one for us to grasp because it's spiritual, which feels really ethereal to us. It's hard to grab a hold of. So let me try to say it another way. Over the last few weeks, you might have noticed that the world has seen a lot of UFO activity. I feel like every time I, I turn on the news, anytime I look online, I see something about an, another UFO or another balloon or whatever it is. And of course, when we say UFOs, most people think of extraterrestrial beings like E.T. Or, or something sinister. But as a kid, my dad would always remind me when people talked about UFOs. He said, Neil... UFO doesn't mean anything crazy. He said, it just means they don't know what it is yet. It just hasn't been identified. According to one report uh, about these UFOs recently, an F-22 pilot said that he saw objects that interfered with the sensors on their planes and he, they couldn't identify any propulsion system. So the reports were suggesting that these objects seem to operate with a technology that doesn't exist on Earth. So let's just for a second assume that these really are alien technologies, and it's a technology that's far more advanced than what we have in the U.S. Wouldn't it be silly for us to try to attack those things with the human weapons that we have access to? Yet that's the very thing we do when we fail to recognize the spiritual realm that animates every single bad thing that happens on this earth. Does that make sense? 
The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So no matter what it looks like to you, when you're encountering a struggle, the struggle's source is spiritual. The source is not what you can see. So your battle can't be with weapons of war that are tangible, but with spiritual weapons of worship. Today, we're going to look at the three things in life that work to impede the movement of God in our lives. And then we're going to talk about how when we worship God, we are using the best weapon available to us to fight our battles. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. So in this, in these three verses, the apostle Paul tells us three struggles of all of humanity. No one gets out of this life without these three kinds of struggles. The first one is the ways of the world. The second is the ruler of the kingdom of air, which is actually just a way to, to say the devil. It's actually the devil himself. And the third are, are the cravings of the flesh. Let's make these really simple. The ways of the world. What does that mean? It means that the, the systems and beliefs that exist in this world, that they're prevalent all over the world, and they don't align with the ways of Jesus. For instance, all of the attitudes that we are tempted to, to act out in our lives to put us first. Uh, the things that we rationalize because everyone else is doing it. Turning political parties into saviors and treating those who think differently than, than we do as pariahs. Like we exclude people, we, we accept some and exclude others. Living only for the here and now, all of these things are ways of the world. Now, the ruler of the kingdom of the air is the devil. And we know, uh, according to what Jesus said in John 10, 10, that the devil's desire is to steal from you, to kill you, and to, and to destroy you. But he will make you smile and want more of it while he does it. Isn't that tricky? The cravings of the flesh are all the things that are sinful that tempt you. Whatever it is that, that when you get stressed out or, or you, whatever it is that like the thing that, that you know you're drawn to that is wrong, you know it's wrong, but you struggle with this craving of the flesh. And while Paul tells us that before Jesus, we were dead in our transgressions, I think that if we're honest, all of us would say that we still have a lot of struggle. There is a pull on us to, to blend into the world. It's a pull by the devil to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Um, and it's profoundly difficult and tricky as we live this out in our lives. Even if you want to think that you're better than you are and you're like, no, I'm, I'm kind of past those things. Let me just have you wrestle for a second with the words of 1 John, verse, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. He simply says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That should be both humbling and encouraging to us as we always keep the reality in front of us that Jesus loves us and Jesus came to save us from our sin. So we don't have any reason to, to pretend like we have it together because God has rescued us in our sin. He loves us. He is for us. 
And, and God has given us this ability to worship and to put the devil on the defensive as we seek to invite the Lord to help us to overcome the cravings of the flesh, the world, and even the devil himself. Today, we're going to look at two passages in the Bible that highlight how worship is a formidable weapon. And then you're going to hear an encouraging testimony of how worship changed someone's life. In Acts chapter 16, we follow the story of Paul and Silas. They were two of the early church leaders, and they got themselves into a bit of what I would call good trouble as they delivered a girl from an evil spirit. Acts chapter 16, you can follow along verses 16 through 34. It says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and he fastened their feet with stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Now, many of you have probably heard that story before, and I would bet that for the most part, the focal point of the story is how when Paul and Silas worshiped, that God broke their chains and freed them, that God brought these two good men justice. They were imprisoned for, for wrong reasons, and, and God rescued them from their circumstances, and that would be true. By human standards, they deserved to be free. They'd done nothing wrong. They were treated with rage and contempt, with deceit. And then they worshiped God and God set them free. But something happens when we worship God. When we invite the Savior to sit in the focal point of our lives, in the center of the table of our lives, Jesus enters the room. And when Jesus enters the room, our eyes will be lifted far beyond the scope of ourselves in order to be of service to God and others. 
Paul and Silas did the most selfless thing after worshiping the Lord. They used their freedom for the good of another because that's what Jesus did for them. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, it says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. When Jesus was sitting on the throne of Paul and Silas's lives, their focus was lifted beyond their circumstances, and they entered into God's purposes more, rather than just grabbing hold of freedom for themselves. When we worship the Lord, we are waging war against the oh-so-loud and insatiable desires of our flesh. It wouldn't have been wrong for Paul and Silas to leave and be free, but they chose in that moment to be living sacrifices for the sake of Jesus. And God used their worship and their witness to save the jailer, who if they had just left, the jailer almost certainly would have been killed. He would have been forced to pay with his life for their escape. It's incredible what God will accomplish through us when we worship him in spirit and in truth. Everything in this world has been broken by sin, and we see it play out in the course of the world. And one of those ways it plays out very loudly around us all the time is in the form of wars. And Christians get into debates about war all the time, and some say that no war is justified, and others say that there are just wars and unjust wars. No matter how you come down on that issue, it is tough to avoid the reality that Jesus shared when Judas betrayed him and, and Jesus' friend took out his sword and chopped off the, the, the guard's ear. And in Matthew 26, 52, Jesus said, put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Now we are not privy to how this all works out, but it is clear from these passages in the context of scripture that divine justice does not always look like earthly justice. Now the former is clearly superior in every way. And in light of that, I want you to imagine the very end of time. The final battle known as Armageddon is about to begin. And the warriors of the nations gather to, to battle against the armies of God. And it's surreal and it's serious. Because God says this is how the end of human history will come about. Revelation chapter 9, verses 11 through 16. John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages wars. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, we, we hear about the armies of heaven. It's very likely that they're not just angels, but it's, it's, it's people who have gone on and entrusted their lives to Jesus who have died. And they're redeemed and they're clothed in white and they're still standing behind the Lord. Now, I want you to take note of something. They are going into battle with no weapons, but they are wearing clothes that are well-suited for worship. The armies of heaven don't have to lift a finger. They just have to be with Jesus, and Jesus will right every single wrong. 
Revelation chapter 19, verse 21, it tells how the battle between the devil and the forces of the world against Jesus and the armies of heaven ends. It says, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That might sound incredibly sad, but these are people that God has decided are his enemies and they will never turn. When we worship Jesus and we endure the challenges and trials of our lives and we resist waging war the way the world tells us, we will overcome this broken world and live forever in the eternal Eden with Jesus. I'm super excited to invite Brandy to share her personal testimony of how when she worshiped, God broke the oppression that the devil was trying to work in her life. Well, good morning. I am honored to get to be with you this morning and just share with you um, a huge part of my testimony that so relates to what Neil was talking about um, and the stories that he was preaching from this morning. Because I went through a season of time in my life, in my early 30s, it was a very difficult time that I now know was a period of time that would be described as spiritual oppression. And for me, the idea of worship through praise being our weapon in spiritual warfare is not this biblical concept to me that's up here, but it is actually something that I have experienced. The same um, power and freedom that Paul and Silas in the jail experienced all those thousands of years ago is the same thing that I feel I experienced through this weapon of worship. And so even though probably many of you have seen me teach before, I will say that giving this testimony does feel vulnerable. And yet I'm excited to share it because I know the power in this message and in this testimony. And so some of you have heard me uh, give this testimony before, but my hope in sharing it again is that there, if there is anyone today that is going through an incredibly difficult season or perhaps a season of intense spiritual oppression or attack. It is my hope that you can hear what God did for me through worship that set me free and that you can have that same experience. Because about eight years ago or so, um, we were living in my family, we were living out a season that was just incredibly difficult. You've probably had seasons like that too. And so it seemed like every aspect of our life was met with challenge. And because of that, I felt that I was living under a cloud of uh, continual stress, and it created a lot of fear in me. And because of this, just my vision began to be clouded with this cloak of negativity. I was stuck in negative thoughts. The things that were coming out of my mouth were um, gloom and doom. And eventually, I began to feel that my faith was crumbling. 
the truth was I kept these doubts that I was having about God to myself because the theology that I believed did not match the reality that I was experiencing. And yet my husband was a pastor and I was leading worship and I did not feel um, comfortable to talk about this with anyone. So I tried to deal with it on my own. And eventually my questioning of God's character and especially and particularly his goodness became so big in my mind that it had began to cement. And I was starting to live from a place where I did not believe that God was overall good or had my best interest in mind. Now, on the outside, everything still looked pretty much the same. We were still going to church. I was still leading worship. I was still reading my Bible and doing all of the things. Um, but on the inside, the mental struggle became so real that um, I did not feel that I had the strength to overcome the negative thoughts that were coming in my head. And so because it was intense, it was easier for me to just set the Bible aside and not entertain it. And of course, then things only got worse. Eventually, uh, my parents and Neil became so concerned for me that they believed that I might need to have some type of intervention. And I did eventually check into a two-week day program that was treating me for what they diagnosed depression and anxiety. I was going to this program every day, but keeping my normal weekend and evening activities. And so no one outside of my family even knew that I was going through this. Now that two week program was very helpful to me in many ways, just being able to have a safe place to open up and talk about what was going on was incredibly helpful. I met some wonderful counselors that gave me some great tips on kind of how to handle some of the stressors in my life. Um, I tried medication and it didn't work. It kind of, my body just kind of rejected it and that didn't work. But I was released from there feeling a little bit stronger and a little more able to deal with the day-to-day -day stress. But the truth was the deepest hurt in my heart was still not mended. And that was the hurt that I was experiencing because I felt that my faith had crumbled and I did not sense God's nearness anywhere. And then one day I was taking a walk. Even that can be hard to do when you're going through depression, but I was doing it, putting one foot in front of the other. And I decided to listen to a sermon um, by Dr. Tony Evans and I will never forget the sermon because it is a sermon that literally changed everything. And he was talking about spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6. He was um, reminding his audience that spiritual warfare um, was something that we needed to fight spiritually because our battle wasn't against flesh and blood. And he began to talk about all of the pieces of spiritual armor. And he went on to explain that all of the pieces of spiritual armor were actually more of these um, defensive type, the shield and the helmet. These were defensive pieces of armor with the exception of one piece, and that was the sword. And he explained that the sword was the offensive tool and the sword, spiritually speaking, was the word of God. 
He went on then to explain that the word of God that it was referring to was rhema, and that rhema meant the spoken word of God. He talked about how the sword that is depicted in that scripture is actually more like a short knife, like a, like a dagger. And he talked about the significance of that knife being one that you would only really need to use against an enemy that was up close. So he talked about what to do when you were going through times where your biggest enemy, the devil, is really coming in up close and attacking you. He talked about the importance of not just reading the word or just believing it in your mind, but about speaking it. And he talked about this was the way to advance against your enemy and take your stand. And as I was hearing that message, I literally felt like it was my very last attempt. In my mind, I had sank so low in my faith that it was just kind of like, I'll try this. And if it doesn't work, I, I, I don't know. I guess I give up. But I tried it. And the, what, and the way that I did it was I began to sing. I began to sing worship. Now, before this, I would have always said that I was a worshiper. I had a good relationship with worship music and praise. I grew up in a musical family. I've always liked music. I've always liked singing. And so the worship segment of church services were always something that I naturally enjoyed. But now this was different because as I was understanding the significance in what this does in the spiritual realm, I began to sing, not to try to sound good. I didn't just sing songs I liked. I tried to find songs that were deeply theologically correct. I tried to sing them even though I didn't know if I believed it anymore. But I tried to constantly get these songs out of my mouth. And I believed as best as I could what was happening in the spiritual. And eventually what I began to realize was as I was singing more worship songs, I was speaking less negativity. As I was singing worship songs, I was speaking more life and less death. I was thinking things that were true and less untruths. I began to feel energized, not just outside, but on the inside. And slowly but surely, I began to feel a pull back to his word. And not just for academic purposes or because I believe that's what a Christian person should do, but I began to feel a pull to his word because it felt like, um, like there was a phone call coming in for me and I needed to answer it. I wanted to hear from God. I began to pray differently because I was weaving more of his word into my prayers. And before I knew it, I had not only felt closer to God than I ever did before, but I was more sure of his goodness than I had ever been. And all of this time, I had never um, stepped out of that position of leading worship and leading a, a band at the church I was in at the time. And the way that I began to sing from the stage and the way that I began to coach the worship team and lead the congregation changed entirely. 
because I had a new depth of understanding of what we were actually doing. And every Sunday that I got up there to sing, I really truly no longer worried about how it sounded as much, but instead I would look at the faces of the people that I was leading and I would be praying over them through these songs, praying that God would break the chains off anybody that felt imprisoned or held down by doubts and fears the way that I had. It was as if God had used my willingness to openly praise Him, even though I wasn't feeling it at first, and it felt like He used that to sort of take my hand and lead me back home. And to this day, I'm not saying that I do this perfectly because I certainly go through times of anxiety and I certainly go through times of doubt and I go in and out of even just wanting to worship through praise. But I do know this, for as long as I live, if I am sensing that I'm in a spiritual attack or if I feel that I'm distant from God, I know the way back home. If I'm being attacked by the enemy, I know the weapon to wield. And I hope that after today's message that you will feel encouraged to do the same. Because not only did God use worship to free me, but just like with Paul and Silas, he freed me for a purpose. And not only do I have this, this revelation of what he can do and will do through our willingness to worship, but I feel that I have a purpose to do that on behalf of others. And God has blessed me with so many opportunities to get to do just that. So as we close today and, and we're led into this final song, I hope that you will consider singing maybe differently than you have in a while. I hope that you'll consider singing as if your soul's well-being depends on it, as if this is the weapon that you need to wield to make advancements in your own spiritual battle or on behalf of someone that you love. The battle is real. The battle is hard, but in Christ, we are on the winning side. We are victorious, and we have this weapon of worship to wield. Thank you.